0: Grant me this serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right as I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life, and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Some of you know the name Ted Turner. He's now in his 80s. He was at one time married to Jane Fonda, also the founder of CNN, both challenging enterprises, I'm quite sure, Um, though he was no peach either. Uh, In 1990, he once quipped in an interview, that Christianity was a religion for losers. A few years later, he thought that the Pope would improve himself if he stepped on a landmine. He called CNN employees, who happened to be donning ashes on Ash Wednesday, a collection of Jesus freaks. So, in other words, he was not a fan. Uh, And yet, are we surprised that there are people in the world who will not be our fans? Jesus told us to expect... This sort of treatment, even though I wish he hadn't ever said such a thing. You know, I find that Jesus is the world's worst salesman. Worst salesman, especially when it comes to religion. He clearly never read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, never read some other author's book, The Art of the Deal. Um, But, you know, if you're trying to sell religion, if you're trying to sell this thing, you need a few perks. A few perks like financial security or maybe altered consciousness or relational harmony or it's a good way to lose weight and become disciplined or maybe you can become a sought after guru or maybe you can finally at long last earn the smile and respect of society. Even moguls like Ted Turner and yet our Messiah doggedly uh, refrains from offering these perks He seems to run a religion for losers for uh, a country of crucified men and women. Well, our text from St. Mark's Gospel includes two offenses, Two offenses. The first is found in verses 31 through 33, in which Jesus predicts his own public butchery at the hands of the well-dressed hierarchs. Peter is understandably disgusted by this admission and wishes to obstruct Jesus's death wish. And Jesus calls him Satan. It's rough. And then there's the second offense in verses 34 to 38, in which Jesus predicts that his dark destiny will shape our destinies as well, that he will be the king of a nation of crucified men and women. I've often, when preaching this passage, focused on the first portion, not today. I'm focusing on the second offense in verses 34 to 38. And I'd like to uh, help us to see three particular elements within this great offense related to Jesus's apprentices. And the first element that I want us to see is the need for annihilation, the need for annihilation. Uh, And so in the broader context of chapter eight of Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus has just asked a question of his most intimate followers. He wants to know what they think about him and his true identity. Peter pipes up and says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, that's absolutely correct. There's 30 seconds of joy before Jesus begins to define Christhood with a lot of negativity, particularly his own butchery. Well, after this moment and after Jesus and Peter squabble, he says uh, in verse 34, and I'd like you to read it along with me, please. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Now I want you to notice first what he does. He's with his disciples when he asks this question about his Christhood. But then when he makes this very difficult and dark prediction regarding not only himself, but his followers. He expands the audience. Now it's not only the intimate crew, the disciples, those in the inner circle. He invites the outer circle to hear this one as well. Now, if I were Jesus trying to market a religion, and even if I understood that that religion would involve difficulty or suffering, I would only let the inner circle know that. So as not to scare away everybody who was lingering on the outside. Well, he invites the whole crowd to hear this dark data. Um, Now, many people, when they hear this passage, simply believe that Jesus, when he says, take up your cross and follow me, he indicates suffering and inconvenience in the Christian life. That as we follow a soon-to-be-crucified Messiah, we cannot be surprised that we are occasionally inconvenienced. Oh, if only that's what it meant. If only that's what it meant. Um, Friends, it's much worse than that. The cross is not a symbol of challenge. The cross is a symbol of finality and annihilation. How do I know that? Because everybody who hung on a cross died from it. And more than that, Jesus in this very passage, yea, in these verses, talks about losing one's life. He's giving us a picture of total execution. This would be the rough equivalent if Christ were among us today or among the people in the 1930s. He would say something like this. Take your seat in the gas chamber. Take down down these cyanide capsules. Take your place in the line that leads to the guillotine. He's talking about something total. We are walking toward our demise Um, The cross is not only an emblem of finality and annihilation, it's an emblem of grisly finality and annihilation. This isn't sort of the annihilation that somebody like Socrates experienced, right? Socrates was given by the rulers of Athens... A lot of leeway to get out of town, saying, look, if you keep doing what you're doing and you stick around, we're going to have to kill you. So you might want to leave. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. But he stuck around. They eventually charged him with corrupting the youth of Athens with his new teachings. And there he was, surrounded by friends, sipping hemlock until he comfortably uh, went into a permanent sleeping state, right? That's how he met his annihilation. If only the cross were that soft, but it's not. There's a very famous Anglican prayer that talks about Jesus being punctured into the hard wood of the cross, that this is a ghastly experience. It's it's about public butchery and shame and suffering as your naked body is spiked with railroad ties into Cyprus until you stop breathing. That's the image Jesus chose to sell his movement? That's the image that Jesus used to describe the future for his apprentices. You are going to be a nation of cross-carriers, followers who voluntarily accept suffering because of an allegiance to a Christ whose chief work was to suffer. In other words, what he's saying to these students is you were made in the image of pain. And that is the image That will cause you to suffer. You know, um, whenever we're made in the image of God and the likeness of God, there's a lot of ideas and concepts that float around, you know, under that heading. Um, But the clearest image of God that we have in Scripture is Jesus Christ. And in Scripture, we are called to be conformed to that image and likeness, which means in part that you were made in the image of pain, because that's key to understand That's key to understanding the figure of Christ. And so because we were made in that image and likeness, it's not surprising that that will be our end as well. And I want to say, friends, annihilation, annihilation, or what our Eastern brothers and sisters would call a deep humiliation, is part, not just part, but core to Christian spirituality. Now, let me clarify what I mean. I'm not talking about masochism. I'm not talking about adoration of pain for pain's own sake. Uh, there have been movements that have believed in such a thing. We don't. When Jesus here speaks about death, annihilation, and carrying the cross, he is talking about the death of our flesh. And what I mean by flesh is not our, just our like, skin. I don't mean that at all, actually. I mean our fallen nature, our dehumanizing parts. Those elements, those dark Anti-God, satanic elements of our own personhoods that need to die in order for us to thrive. This image of annihilation and death is not only offered by Jesus of Nazareth, it's offered by Paul, who in the New Testament says put to death Put to death what is earthly in you. He also says about his own nature, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And that's why even the sacrament of baptism, the initiating right into Christianity is a rite of drowning of death that in baptism says St. Paul, you are placed in Christ's graveyard. You are buried with Christ. There is something about your old nature belonging to the Thanatos drive, the great uh, incredulity in the universe. That dies with Jesus' corpse, at least where God is concerned and how he views you. That is the thing that needs to die to be crucified. I have a friend who suffered a, a terrible professional trauma, actually two of them in his 50s. When you're in your 50s, and I'm, I'm not there yet. But when you're in your 50s, from what I hear, especially from many men that I speak to, the hope is that you've finally mastered your craft, that you have defeated most of your inner demons, you know yourself pretty well, and therefore you've become increasingly invincible, or you're stepping toward invincibility. That's actually not the experience of most people. Uh, it's the hope for experience, but yet uh, it is elusive. Well, my friend experienced uh, two, two catastrophic failures in his professional life that almost made him want to take his own life. But then afterward, looking back on that horrific experience, he wrote this in a book about his defeats. He wrote, The penultimate purpose of life is to be destroyed. The penultimate purpose of life is to be destroyed. Notice he said penultimate. That means not the ultimate, but the one right under it. And then he continues, because being destroyed is the gateway to personal renaissance. Being destroyed is the gateway to personal renaissance. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes about this in the novel Till We Have Faces, uh, where he says, Die before you die, for there is no chance after. What he meant is that you need to meet your end now if you're ever really going to thrive. You need to see certain elements of yourself lopped off. You need the gangrene taken away. You need to have your flesh crucified. Or otherwise, you just become another vehicle for the powers of hell in the present. So better to die now. Better to lose it now because of your bond with this Jesus Christ, even though it will be painful and even though it will be more than painful. It will involve annihilation. And yet annihilation is key to the Christian enterprise. So that's the first element, annihilation. The second element, preservation. Preservation. Yes, I'm, be- I'm using alliteration yet again. What a surprise, huh? Verse 36, I invite you to follow along. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Preservation of the soul. You know, following Jesus guarantees, guarantees certain losses, important losses. And what he's saying to his followers is those losses don't begin when you die. The losses begin right now. In fact, those losses will necessarily involve the very things and conceptions that our sinful world and our own sinful natures value. You will lose what you value. There will be certain dark jewels in your hands that will be robbed from you by God for your own well-being. I find this a fascinating passage because when he talks about gaining the whole world and losing your soul, it's like he has those two things on scales. And which is heavier? Which is more important? The entire weight of the planet or your individual tiny spark? And he said the spark outweighs the world. Why? Because eventually Everest is going to crumble, but your spark won't. Right? So there's something about your eternality as somebody made in the image of an eternal God that has great and enduring and a forever value. And Jesus is saying you need to prioritize what perseveres. And the things that persevere are the things that are valued, valuable in the kingdom of God. And outside of that kingdom and what it values, those things will eventually turn into dust. Uh, And if we value too much the things of this world which are passing away, not only will that have destructive effects in the life to come, it will have destructive effects now. I was reading uh, an article Actually, that was made into a book by David Myers. It was called *The American Paradox: Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty*, published by Yale University Press. This is what uh, this is what um, David Myers writes. From 1960 to 1993, income in America doubled, doubled. It's amazing. But during that same time, the divorce rate doubled, teen suicide tripled, juvenile violence quadrupled, and unwed births quintupled. Although the average American has more money today, there is less happiness, more depression, more fragile relationships, less communal commitment, less vocational security, more crime, and more demoralized children than ever before. Even though we have all of our shiny toys and Amazon Prime memberships. (laughs) And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Uh, Friends, Jesus is saying here, we need to prioritize what perseveres. And we just celebrated Ash Wednesday together in which we remembered with great ashen crassness the many things that do not persevere. That's what Ash Wednesday is all about. Remembering that our bodies, the health of our bodies, our eyesight, our endless dental work, Our weight loss, our weight gain, our musculature doesn't persevere. Our plans, you know those don't persevere. Our potency, our attractiveness, our cars, our brains, our hobbies, our positions, our titles. I mean, you listen, it doesn't, it's not going to carry on past the Jordan. What will persevere is your love and your souls. The things that are prized by heaven will find their way into the next life and will physicalize themselves once again. Uh, But he's saying, you need to prioritize what lasts. That's what it means to be a follower on the cruciform hill. So that's something about annihilation, something about preservation, and now lastly, something about identification, the third element, identification. This is verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, Jesus, even in predicting his death, is not a self-hating nihilist. In fact, right here, he is predicting a very public vindication with universal implications. That is, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory. Like, he is the definitive hero of history, and there is none other. So he actually has a very high estimation of what he's about to accomplish in his death and resurrection, and second coming. And it's important to note that our, the entirety of our passage today begins and concludes with the term son of man. Jesus doesn't always use that term to refer to himself, but he frequently does. And that is a technical term that has its origin in Daniel chapter 7, a very important bit of prophecy from the Old Testament. And in Daniel chapter 7, there is this divine human being, a very odd conception within Judaism, the religion of monotheism, a divine human being who comes before the ancient of days. That's Daniel's way of talking about God. To establish the son of man, will establish a kingdom that will not and cannot be destroyed and will overthrow all of the kingdoms of this world. And that this man, this God man, this divine man, is of the highest import for not just the Jews, but for the entirety of the world. And it seems, according to Jesus, that the esteem of heaven hinges upon how we relate to this Son of Man figure, and what we make of him, and, to quote him here, his words. Now, what is that a reference to? What words is he talking about? The Sermon on the Mount? You know, what he said when he was six years old? <laughs> we don't have that. Um, well, you know, an, an argument that he had with his mother. I mean, what words is he talking about? Well, I think it's very likely the words he just spoke to his disciples about his forthcoming death. Because that was the thing that caused Peter to feel shame. That was the thing that caused Peter to to sense in himself a great protest. That's the thing that causes the objection. That is the thing that, to quote St. Paul, is the scandal on. Or the scandal that we have a Messiah that people are going to regard as a loser. The winners of this world. Uh, The Ted Turners of this world will call him a loser. And are we prepared to identify with a loser Christ? With somebody that the world hates, do we have the courage to believe in a man like that? Or to quote Isaiah, a man from whom we hide our faces, a man draped in curtains of blood. Do we have the courage to identify with him? Because the world, by and large, said no to Jesus. They said no to Jesus because Jesus was too critical and yet Jesus was too consoling, Jesus was too invasive, Jesus was too narrow, Jesus was too inclusive, Jesus was too exclusive, Jesus was too political, Jesus was too apolitical, and so the world had to pound him out of existence, which they did. We did. It was a worldwide conspiracy to shut up God forever, to kill him. And we thought we accomplished it. The world screams no to God until he dies. And it is quite true. The son of man from Daniel 7 had no place to lay his head except on a cold slab in a graveyard. Dare we identify with that Christ, that butchered Christ, even if it means we are the recipients of some of that scorn? Do we dare do it? This is what Jesus is saying. This is how he's selling his movement that you'll experience annihilation. You need to consider True preservation, by clinging to things that persevere, and identification. I want you to identify with me in my losses, or you can't identify with me in my glory. So that's the text. Feels like one of those leaden vests that you wear at the dentist's office that protect you from radiation um, as they step out of the room and press a button. Um, But I'm not stepping out of the room. I'm with you. I'm with you in this. And I want to offer you now a concluding postscript because I think this text underscores the demolition and reconstruction of the human ego. And this is a prophetic word for our times, friends. The demolition and reconstruction of the human ego. Jesus, in this passage, rather directly assaults our current understanding of the self and our idolatry of personal identity. You know, we live in a time of radicalized differentiation in which so many of us are seeking to carve out a unique identity in terms of many things, our age, are we a baby boomer, are we a millennial, are we a generation Z person who can critique the millennials and the baby boomers? What's our politics, right, left, anarchist, green? What's our gender? Evidently, according to some sources, there are 87 of them now and counting. What about our sexuality, our race, our income, etc.? So we have this bifurcated, beyond bifurcated view of human identity. And what's more than that, we demand so often a relentless, uniform, and absolute affirmation of our self-created or self-understood identity. And we will brook no dissent. We require, if I can put it this way, worship. Worship of self. Uh, Or to quote the prophetess Christina Aguilera, you are beautiful no matter what they say. In every single way, words can't keep me down. I can't do it, but you know. You know the song, right? You're beautiful in every single way. We worship our identity and we demand acolytes who will worship it too. Why? Because we have believed the most ancient lie in the book that salvation is is within the self. Salvation has to do with deeper self-discovery. Self-discovery, being my true self, living my truth, adoring myself as I read Self Magazine and stare at myself on my Instagram, right? And then comes Jesus who ruins our party and says, do you look good on wood? (laughs) Those who seek to save their lives will lose them. What I love about Jesus is how non-stupid he was, nor fashionable. He understood the self to be notoriously complex. That is, it is a, a marriage of things that are beautiful and that are the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And they are being brought together in a way that doesn't really work. And there are elements within us that are gangrenous, And for the sake of the rest of the body, need to be gotten rid of, annihilated rather than affirmed. If you have gangrene on your arm, I mean, you can do a whole lot of things with that gangrene. You can speak to it. You could say, gangrene, I love you. I affirm you. You are wonderful in every single way. Words can't keep me down. Christina Aguilera said it. And you can keep affirming. All you want to, day and night, until the gangrene kills you. Or you can admit that maybe, just maybe, and maybe more than maybe, there are elements of my person that are gorgeous, and elements of my person that are deeply troubled, and some that I just don't know what to do with yet. Maybe that's a more honest way of understanding the human person, and less egotistical, and less salvific, See, Christianity involves, by necessity, submitting to the fact that salvation is not found within, it comes from without. Salvation comes from outside the self. It is not found in you. In you is beauty and cholesterol. Uh, And it's a combination of both. Salvation has to come from outside. And we see this all over scripture. In the incarnation, Jesus was not originally born into your heart. He was born outside your heart in a cold Judean cave. We see this in the sacraments of water, bread, and wine. They are given to us. They are done to us. You are washed and fed from outside yourself by someone else who tells you who you are, that you are the recipient of grace. It's the tr- truth of the second coming. We do not create the kingdom of God. Jesus ushers it in. Even our so-called self-awareness is not so much a learning About the self, from the self, Self self-awareness means learning the truth about ourselves from Jesus because we don't trust ourselves enough to tell us the full truth. Instead, we go to Jesus as the definer of the self. He teaches us about how vexed we are, and more than that, he teaches us how deeply and sacrificially and eternally and unflinchingly loved we are at the cross. And I am blind to my pathologies, and I am blind to love without him. And so we need not affirmation, but absolution. That is our core need, and Jesus defines that for us, defines who we are. So, Jesus, friends, guarantees, guarantees that we will bear the cross, which means we'll bear pain and annihilation. There are two primary sources from which that pain comes, a world that labels us as losers and ourselves fighting against Christ. But his unyielding quest is to rob us of every cheap, dehumanizing consolation we give ourselves, consolations that do not truly console. And he wants to establish us rather in truer and everlasting comfort. He wants something better for us. But with Jesus, crosses and demolition are never definitive. Friends, we are not grim, dark-minded nihilists because we have a very, very risen Christ, and no sort of death, neither existential nor physical, can stop us now. There's a saying from the medieval church, per crucem ad lucem, through the cross into the light. Lent, thankfully, does not conclude with more Lent. It concludes with a mended ego, the restoration of the self, and the resurrection of a decaying world. Our Lenten experience, littered with a billion crosses, is outshone by our future Easter, which involves a billion points of undying light. Amen.